Good evening. I'm Isn't thrilled this, to be here. You're supposed to put this close to your mouth, they told me. Isn't this good? Yeah. <laughs> what are y'all doing here? <laughs> Everybody knows what's going on tonight. <laughs> I told my friend, I said, God, maybe nobody will come. You know, it's raining and they'll all be nestled down all snug in their living rooms, you know, getting the straight skinny. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> uh, I want to start by saying how grateful I am that Katie Couric, who has kids at home and, you know, shows to do and all of that, that she would take her time to come and do this interview tonight. This is an amazing thing. Thank you. Well, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm just going to go at it. And as you all probably know, I've never been to... Uh, this speaker series at the Y, so I'm not all that familiar with the format, but as you all know, you'll have an opportunity to ask some questions. So all the ones that you think I've missed, which I'm sure I'll miss a few, you can make up for that towards the end of the program. And obviously, we want to start with some of the most topical things uh, to ask Governor Richards. And you brought up the, uh, the most topical thing, <laughs> Governor Richards, and that, of course, is Monica Lewinsky. Of course, many less erudite New Yorkers are at home watching the pre-interview. <laughs> game show, and um, as Monica Lewinsky prepares to tell all from President Clinton's uh, kissing abilities to the infamous thong and all sorts of things in between, I'm just curious what, uh, well, that wasn't a, <laughs> oh God, that was a really bad Freudian slip, wasn't it? Um, I'm Which just... <laughs> part of that do you want me to talk about? What are your impressions of this whole sordid affair? Uh, Katie's not going to tell you that we just spent about 10 minutes back there in the back talking about how you flash a thong. <laughs> uh, and, and, and as, you know, as bright and experienced as I am, it is not something that I knew how to do. <laughs> and as it turned out, neither did Katie. <laughs> um, the whole sordid episode uh, it was something that was played out in public that many of us knew took place in private with previous people who occupied the White House. It wasn't really as if it was any surprise that, you know, a, a guy who has the kind of ego it takes to be president might mess around. I think the shock in this case was that the Republicans had laid out how they were going to get him. And the tragedy of it all is that 
the compulsion that must be exist in some fashion there um, o overrode the intellect. I don't think there's any question that anyone, um, anyone I know that knows and deals with Bill Clinton knows that he is, without a doubt, probably the smartest president we've seen in our lifetime. He is incredibly knowledgeable on an unbelievably deep level of almost anything that you could name. And so to have got fallen into that kind of trap is not an intellectual exercise. <laughs> now, the whole question of it is, and Katie ought to kind of talk from the point of view of the media, because it it became such a huge soap opera, and that's really what it was. We all came home and turned on CNN to see what happened in the episode <coughs> that day, you know. <laughs> and uh, when, we, when we missed the CNN, we would listen to the Today Show the next morning. <laughs> Now, what do I think it all means? That's what matters. I mean, it was rumored, all kinds of things like this were rumored about all kinds of, of people in public life, but it, 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 never really, it never really played out for all of us to read all the sordid details. But now that it is out there, it is not going to change. And all of this stuff that you keep talking about, oh, the media re-examining themselves and whether we played a role in this and just, you know, ripping their shirts open and looking for their bleeding heart and trying to decide whether they're going to do it different the next time. Well, the answer is no, they're not. Of course they're not going to. Because what happens is that it, it once someone prints it somewhere, then it's okay for it to be in the public discourse, either on TV or on radio or on something. I think they're going to be a little bit more cautious about it. I think it's one of the real sad tragedies of our time. Uh, and that's the way I look at it. Now I'm gonna say one more thing and I'm gonna shut up about it. Women were a lot more forgiving of this situation than men were. All the polling showed that. And the reason is that most women have been through this. <laughs> and if we took the jobs away from all the men who did stuff like this, <laughs> the unemployment lines would stretch from Hill to Calcutta. We wouldn't need affirmative action or anything because all the women would have all the jobs, you know? And Katie, the thing that hacks me off the most about it, and I'm gonna say this, Jane Hickey's gonna faint, but the right wing has cut off the opportunities for women to get ahead by trying to kill affirmative action everywhere. And now they're trying to cut it off from us sleeping around to get ahead. <laughs> you know, there have been some perfectly good big salaries, big titles that have come as a consequence of little liaisons like this. And, 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 and now these, these right-wing nuts <laughs> are going to slam that door too. And it's got the point that it's hard for a girl 
Now have I said enough? This is probably going to get me in a little hot water with this audience, but just to play devil's advocate, Governor Richards, what's wrong with expecting a better, better character and, and more moral behavior from the President of the United States? There is absolutely, there's nothing wrong with it. You can expect all day long. <laughs> you know, it's like when my, my kids were little and they'd come home and they would say, you know, so-and-so's doing so-and-so, can I do it too? And I would say, well, if so-and-so cut their throat, would you want to come in here and cut your throat? And the answer, obviously, is no. Uh, so all of these pious people, and I've seen some of those right-wingers on TV, believe me, that I know things are going on in their lives. <laughs> you know, And they're going, oh, what shall we tell our children? Oh, the children, the children. What about the children? <laughs> and what I really hope is that we had some good, solid sex information going across the dinner table for children with their parents that would not otherwise have taken place. You understand? Parents don't want to talk to kids. about. You don't want to put your hands in the ooey. You want... <laughs> You know, you want somebody at school to do that. You, you remember those things we girls used to be herded off into the gym, and they'd show us this film, and it would show this girl trailing through a field of stuff, and the next thing with the camera would come down on a flower bud and it would begin to open, you know, like that. And then the whole thing was sponsored by Kotex. <laughs> and that's how we were supposed to get information, you know? And I know it's for the wrong reasons, but, but I hope very much that kids asked some questions and parents gave some answers that this kind of behavior just gets you in a world of trouble, just gets you in a terrible hurt. Now, I know that I'm supposed to be furious with Bill Clinton, just like I am a bunch of other men I know. But the truth is that I forgave them, and I forgive him, and I'm trying to move on, you know? Um, I don't want to... I don't want to put my expectations to a point that I'm constantly disappointed. Because the truth is, most of these elected officials cannot and will not rise to sainthood uh, any, more, any more than I would or could. Uh, and sure, you want to expect more from the president, but sometimes he disappoints you, just like everybody else does. Let me ask you, Governor, about the impact you think the impeachment proceedings will have on the Republicans in, in future elections, per, you know, particularly the... <laughs> we won't take it personally. <laughs> think they're trying to tell us something? 
Uh, particularly in the upcoming presidential election, do you think it will have ramifications in the year 2000 and in also other elections prior to that? Uh, well, I, th I, I think it was a pretty tawdry deal and it was a very expensive one. Um, and I think that the American public is not stupid. M a lot of them stayed up with the MP. They didn't watch it much because it was so boring, but they, they, they kept up with it. They knew their tax dollars were being spent and they knew it was a partisan deal from beginning to end. And you try to put some other imprimatur on it and, and, and you, as Richard Nixon said so many years ago, you would be wrong. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I, uh, yes, I think it's going to have an impact. I think they're going to talk about bipartisanship, and the Senate's going to talk about what a great experience it was for them to all get in a room together and bond. Um, <laughs> but for those of us who go out on the speaking circuit and try to help people get elected, we are going to remind the public, yes, that 50 million of our tax dollars were spent by Ken Starr, who has been working really hard to move his approval numbers from 14 to eight. <laughs> and, and that the Republicans took quarterback Scar Starr's ball and ran with it. And yes, we're going to use, I'm going to use it politically. Somebody else may be bigger than that, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to tell people what I think, that it was absolutely a waste of money, a waste of time, and generally speaking, every prosecutor in the United States said that they would never have prosecuted anyone for something like that, but it was a political deal, and sure, yeah, it's going to have ramifications, and as a consequence of the fact that the Republicans do not know how to govern, we're going to take the House of Representatives back in this next election. I was going to ask you about the independent counsel law, whether it should be bagged or amended, but that's kind of boring, don't you think? Let me yeah, move on. To, yeah, I think it's boring. Let me move on. I wish I could do that on the Today Show, but I can't, unfortunately. I was going to. Um, but I would like to ask you, uh, Governor Richards, about uh, speaking of presidential politics, about your former opponent, now governor of Texas, George W. Bush. As you know, he's. <laughs> As you. <laughs> Down girl. Do you think it's a heavily? <laughs> I think this is a heavily democratic crowd, or what? Um, he, as you know, he's announced that he will announce an explore, ex, exploratory committee soon. Um, he's sort of seen, been seen by many, or heralded as the the new darling of the GOP. I brought um, Vogue magazine. I know, very highbrow reading, which uh, had a recent profile of him, and uh, I just wanted to read you a quote. But the reason that George, who, is 50, who at 52 is seven years older than Jeb, is receiving such overwhelming presidential-style attention is because a lot of Republicans this go-round are desperate for a candidate who might actually be able to win. They're desperate for a candidate who is not remotely associated with the current poisonous atmosphere on Capitol Hill, for a politician who asserts that it is not possible to lead by dividing 
who can talk family values and denounce the if it feels good, do it standard of his generation, but who is not viewed as the candidate of the religious right, who appeals to women and minorities, and who, most importantly, can raise enough money to compete effectively in the increasingly stacked primary process. Do you think he's the, the golden boy as described? I think he's the Republican nominee. Um, and I, I want to be really clear about this. George Bush is my, my, my governor. He's the governor of my state. Anything that I might say that could even slightly be interpreted as, as, as a critical of George Bush would sound wrong coming from me because, you know, I'm not an unbiased observer. Um, but I don't think the Republicans have anybody else to nominate. I mean, they're not going to nominate Steve Forbes and for obvious reasons, and <laughs> they're not going to nominate Quayle for more obvious reasons. And, uh, they're not going to nominate Lamar Alexander, and, and uh, I don't think that Pat Buchanan's going to make it. And I mean, you look at the field now. I do think that Liddy Dole is going to bring some pizzazz that the Republicans really want uh, to the party. To, they want to appear as if they know about the 21st century. <laughs> and um, so my guess was that, is that the ticket will be George Bush and Liddy Dole. Uh, because I don't think the Republicans going to nominate a woman, let me tell you. Um, <clears throat> oh, no. So their goal will be to try to cut into the women's vote. The women elect the president. Uh, what they don't know is that they do not vote for women because they're women. Women will vote for a woman if it's even. They'll say, well, you know, if one's no better than the other one, then I'll give the woman the, the nod. Uh, but they will not vote for a woman simply because she is female. But here is the problem that George Bush has and Liddy and, and anyone who gets nominated on the Republican ticket. The Republican Party in its um, structure, the state, Dem state Republican executive committees who control the delegations and who goes to conventions is controlled by the right-wing Christian coalition militia-loving, public-school-hating, gay-baiting right wing. Now, that's all there is to it. And you cannot get the nomination. You can't get the nomination unless you are willing to pay obeisance to a, the, the, the majority of the tenants that they have set forth. Now, what most of these candidates do is to say, well, now look, give me a walk on this. Let me say it in a different way, okay? Let me, let me put a blanket over it. Don't let me directly address abortion. Let me just talk about it in the third trimester. You understand? Let me split the issue enough so that I can appear to be against abortion for your sake and I can bring along the rest of these other people who might think that a woman has a right to choose 
and that, that I'm going to be okay on the first two trimesters. So they're going to split every issue as best they possibly can to make it appear that they are not sucking up to all these nuts. <laughs> you understand? But they got to do it to get the nomination. And I don't think we Democrats are going to let them get away with it. I don't think that our nominees will allow them to get away with it. Now, the biggest problem that we've got is whether through the artifice of, of advertising on television, they are able to pull it off. And you know, Katie, you've interviewed a lot of people who are not outspoken and who, who fudge the issue. And it's hard for you. It's hard for you to get in there and get them to come out. Well, well, okay, I hear that part, but let's talk about this part. You know, I want to get right down to the nitty-gritty with you. Are are you not against this or that? Are you for public schools? Don't tell me that you think we ought to have pilot programs for vouchers where people might buy a religious education with public tax dollars. You understand? But that's the fudge that they're going to give you. They're going to say we ought to allow poor minority students who would not be able to get a good public school education to go to these wonderful, exclusive private schools. You got a picture of that? You got a picture of all those minority kids lined up with their lunch boxes outside of the most expensive private schools? Well, give me a break. <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. Governor Richards, I think the re it, it's been reported increasingly um, lately that the Republican Party realizes, especially moderate, members of the party that they have a real identity crisis yeah. and a real uh, split within the party. People right. like uh, Christy Todd Whitman, et cetera. And they had a meeting down in Florida, I believe, where they talked about the only people that still like them are what business people mm -hmm. and who else do they say? One other subset of the population was pretty small. So do you think that they're going to fix the party? I mean, don't you think that they might somehow bring it more to the center, they realize that they are alienating so many moderate Republicans in this country. Well, how are they going to do that? How are they going to do it? The party structure has been taken over by the right wing. Now, Paul Wyrick, who most of you are, who read the newspaper, know is the one who coined the phrase the moral majority and brought along Ralph Reed um, to lead the Christian coalition and all that stuff, Paul Weirich is now saying, he's saying, listen, the jig is up. Man, there is no cultural revolution anymore. We, there, we may not have a moral majority. I mean, in other words, we don't have the majority of the people who agree with us. But he looks at it from the point of view that we may not politically be able to pull off this revolution. So what he's advising his troops to do are pull their kids out of public school to create a crisis for a collapse in the public schools. He's saying, you know, these homeschoolers, they probably have it right. Uh, he, he's for setting up their own court system and not go to the courts that have the laws that you and 
I live under because he says they've been co-opted and taken over. So in other words, it's a withdrawal. Maybe they are going to withdraw from the Republican Party. Maybe the right wing is going to say, look, you know, we've lost, we're going to pull out, but what happens? What happens when they pull out? Then they've lost, the Republicans have lost their base. I, I think they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. It's going to take candidates with real artifice to dance the dance. If the right wing stays in the Republican Party, then you got to dance with them that brung you. And if they get out of the Republican Party and support Pat Buchanan or, or uh, James Dobson, uh, then, then they got a problem that they don't have enough votes at the base. You understand? And I think we need to do everything we can to encourage both of those things. Um, <clears throat> let me move on to Hillary Clinton, because as you know, it's been the buzz in the sort of Monica withdrawal stages for the media that um, Hillary Clinton might be running for the Senate seat uh, in New York. What do you think of... Uh, that possibility? Well, I think one, uh, that she, if she chose to do that, she would make a remarkable senator. You know, I think, uh, I think she would be in, an incredibly able public servant. Now, the, politically, uh, I think she has to make that decision herself and decide whether this is what she wants to do with her with her life. A lot of people are saying, why in the world would she want to do this? Why would she want to be a junior senator? Why would she want Trent Lott telling her when she could take vacation? Um, why wouldn't she want to want, say, be on a board or make a lot of money doing speeches or do something more philanthropic? So as someone who's been in public service yeah. for many years, you tell us, why would she? Um, because she believes that she can really make a difference. Um, most of us who get into this business, there's not enough glory in it. There's certainly no money in it. Uh, you do it because you think that maybe for some small part of the world that you can change it for the better. And if she chose to get into it, I think it would be for that reason. I've sat in rooms with Hillary and listened to her talk about public policy. and She has a great deal of passion for it. And I think we spend too much time with public officials and, and, and candidates thinking about the mechanics of the politics and not what drives them to do it. And what really drives them is it's, it's almost like missionary work. You know, how can you explain how anybody can take off and go and preach the gospel in some dangerous part of the world, but they go because they fervently believe that they can make a difference, and I think that's true in politics as well. And I, that would motivate Hillary. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the right wing, because I know that's something you feel very strongly about, but this is actually not necessarily about the right wing, but perhaps a climate that some say has been established by religious zealots or Christian conservatives. There have been two recent incidents in the news, I think, that upset 
most people in this country, that is the dragging death of James Byrd Jr. and the beating death of Matthew Shepard. Um, I just would like you to reflect on whether you feel people in this country are increasingly intolerant, mean-spirited, et cetera, and what, if anything, can be done about that? Because a lot of people get very discouraged when they hear and, and see the, this kind of brutality uh, taking place. Well, it's sick stuff. Uh, I lived in Dallas, Texas when John Kennedy was shot and killed. And Dallas, Texas at the time was so full of hatred. Uh, Adlai Stevenson did a speech there and black-booted Nazis marched up and down outside the hall where he spoke. Um, inside the hall when he tried to talk, there were right-wingers who had a kind of orchestrated thing where they started jangling bracelets so that it was disturbing. Uh, it was a time when we had a fellow named uh, General Walker who flew his flag upside town every time somebody came to town that he didn't like because he, it, was a, it was an expression of uh, military distress. Uh, Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson uh, were to go to the Adolphus Hotel downtown to speak and they, Lady Bird was hit with a picket sign and spit on by women in fur coats. There was an atmosphere of real hatred. Um, in fact, when Kennedy was killed uh, in my daughter's classroom, the children applauded when the announcement was made over the loudspeaker that the president had been shot and all the kids could go home. Uh, so I know, I, I've lived through this before. You know, this is deja vu all over again. There is an, there is an atmosphere in which hatred can flourish and the tolerance of it from probably well-meaning people uh, who think that everything can be seen through some sort of moralistic eyes and that anything justify the means, it's blowing up the federal building in Oklahoma City is a perfect example. Uh, the, 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 the guy who sent the bombs through the mail. Um, you don't know what it is that sets these people off. They're, these people are obviously insane in some form. But yes, I think that there is an acquiescence and an agreement that resistance and um, a, a, re, a rebuke of law enforcement, of, of, the, the, of the tenets that I think made this country great, that it's okay, it's, it's okay to do. Now, I, I'm a great defender of the media because I wouldn't have these people's job for anything. You have no idea how hard it is for them to appear intelligent every single day. <laughs> Isn't it? It's very hard for yeah, me. <laughs> but this is one place where the media has done a wonderful job. 
They did a great job with Matthew Shepard, and they did a great job uh, with the situation in Jasper, Texas, because the more that's talked about, the more people are aware. And I think it also then brings about this, uh, this consciousness. Like they just fired some guy down in Washington who's a radio uh, disc jockey or something. The grease man. Yeah. 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 Well, now, but that, now let me tell you what they're going to do. This is what's so stupid. The, he made this really, really disgusting horrible. remark. Um, I don't know if you heard about it. That was completely... Well, about it was her, about Lauren Hill, and he didn't like her music, and he, you know, said something about, well, that's why they did, they do that to people like they did in Texas or whatever. It was drag. It, it was really. I, I'm yeah, not, they ought to drag her behind a truck or something like that. But it was anyway. It was really awful. It was terrible. It was reprehensible. Thank God he got fired. And now, what is they going to do? He, he's going to go to Jasper, Texas and apologize to the family. You think they need that grief from this fool? <laughs> but just the same, the awareness is heightened that we're not going to tolerate this stuff. We're, we're just not going to tolerate it. Now, do, do I think that these people, these nuts, are still going to exist? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. This kind of mentali mentality traditionally flourishes when during economic bad times, um, and yet the economy is so robust. Is that because so many blue-collar workers who were traditionally sort of getting their life's work through a, a shrinking manufacturing base are feeling disenfranchised, do you think? I mean, I don't un understand why it seems so prevalent now, or if we're just paying more attention to it now? No. Uh, I want to say this, because I mean this in a sexist way, but this is a, you know, this is a testosterone problem. <laughs> and uh, people need, I really believe this, people need an enemy. And we haven't had a good enemy since World War II. Uh, the, the, World War II was a time in which the country came together in unified opposition to some really bad things that were going on in the world. Um, we tried to make it happen in Korea, but the country really couldn't come together around Korea. Nobody knew where it was much in those days. And, and a lot of uh, young guys were having to get out of college and go over there and they couldn't figure out what it was all about. And, and then of course Vietnam came along. Vietnam was a terrible war and we found out that our country and our government would lie to us. And that was very disillusioning. So the, we don't really have anybody that we can unify around and, 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 and dislike. Well, that's what these guys, they have gotta have an enemy. They are looking for some way in which they can feel superior. And there is nothing nationally that they can unify around. And so they create these little cells of hatred, and it's focused toward someone who's not like them. You know, it's for, focused toward, in this case, gays or blacks. You can see it along the, uh, along the border against Hispanics. 
Uh, so I can't get into the whole business about the economy and blue collar workers as, as opposed to, to, to white collar workers. I just think it's pure and simple. They need an enemy to make them feel big and strong. And they're nuts, they're crazy. Uh, and I, I, that doesn't forgive them, it's just reality. On a lighter note, <laughs> You look marvelous. You look. <laughs> I know, listen, I know when I walked out, y'all saw, God, does she look good. Um, I know that you've been lecturing with yeah. a nice fee attached to those lectures, by the way. That's the best part. Yeah. <laughs> um, all across the country, and one of the frequent topics that you talk about is women's health. What uh, message are you trying to get out to women and men to so whom you're speaking? So glad you asked. Oh, good. Um, a couple of years ago, my mother died. And uh, watching that process was a really painful thing for my kids and for me. My mother sort of broke off in pieces. She broke her arm, she broke her hip, uh, she, broke her, uh, she broke her hand. And you know, when you look at your parents, you know that in a very short time, that's, that's you. Uh, and so I learned a lot from my mother's death. And one, one thing I learned was that I better go get a checkup uh, because I was pretty sure that since my mother began to shrink in stature uh, and I noticed that my collars weren't fitting the same way that they had previously, that very likely I had osteoporosis too, and I do, in, in early stages. Um, it's the same with you, Katie, with your hu husband's death and finding out that, you know, that colon cancer is a great unknown killer. Uh, my awareness of osteoporosis was simply one of these, you know, most women get old, they shrink, their neck is an inch high, and they start getting a hump. And, you know, it's part of age and there's nothing you can do about it. And just by accident, I, um, I met a young woman who invited me to come to her gym and start working out, lifting weights, because it is, one, it is the one thing that you can do that will build your bone density. So I started lifting weights now, and I can whip your butt. I doubt it. <laughs> I'll challenge you to a little arm wrestling after this, but I wouldn't be so cocky if I were you. <laughs> but the real, the, 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 the real story is here. Listen to me. Women begin losing their bone density after the age of 30. Once you go through menopause, and you know, none of us were taught anything about menopause except that women go crazy. <laughs> and uh, I said that was probably, they went crazy after the last man stepped on the last nerve. 
that some poor 60-year-old woman had. Um, but the stories, you know, about how Aunt Fanny drug herself around the kitchen with a wet rag on the back of her neck. and uh, I mean, there was nothing really that you had to hope for once you passed 60, uh, except the children might come home. And I just, you know, was determined I wasn't going to lead my life that way. It was a huge responsibility for my kids. Can you imagine? Because my mother, she just, oh, it was so tragic, so sad. Just, you know, n nothing to do but feed the dog and water the yard. And I'd say, Mama, come on, let's go somewhere. You know, I'll take you on a trip. No, she had to feed the dog and water the yard. And as a result of that, I don't own anything I have to feed our water. <laughs> Y'all listen to me, think about this. I can walk out of anywhere I live and I turn that key, I can be gone two seconds or 20 years. <laughs> and nothing inside is gonna suffer as a consequence. <laughs> So I, I, so here, so here's the message to you: All the women are scared to death of breast, breast cancer, and they ought to be. They ought to be afraid of breast cancer. And you got to get your mammograms, and you got to do the self-breast examination, and all that stuff. But do you know that more women die of heart attack and stroke than all the cancers in the world combined? that they can get. 300,000 people a year go to the hospital from a broken hip. And that is as a consequence of the fact that their bones have deteriorated. So what happened was I got on, I, I take a, a, a medication called Avista. Um, it, that's not for everybody, but it is a bone density medication. I go and lecture everywhere I can, men and women, talk to your doctor, get a bone density scan, find out how strong those bones are, take the medication, start exercising, do something about your big fat behind. <laughs> Change the way you eat. No one can take care of you but you. And, and let me tell you something else. My mother worried all her life that we weren't going to appreciate all that stuff she spent time collecting, you know? And she was right. <laughs> we didn't want any of it. I, I wouldn't give you a nickel for a cut glass bowl. So I had the biggest garage sale you ever saw. I had it for Mama and I had it for me. I got rid of all her stuff. I got rid of my stuff. My kids don't want all that junk I've been collecting. They want to collect their own junk, you know? And they shouldn't be saddled with it. My mother went around putting people's names on the bottom of stuff. That when she died, they were supposed to get it, you know? They didn't want that syrup pitcher. <laughs> so change your value system. 
Toward the end, that stuff didn't mean anything to Mama either. All that mattered to her was whether we were going to come see her or not. So reassess who and what you care about. Stop and think what really is valuable and means something to you. Think about the feel of your children's hand in yours. Think about an old person who's thrilled to see you when you walk in. Think about walking on the beach with somebody you love. Don't put that off. Don't put that trip off. Don't say, I can't go now because i got to water the yard or feed the dog. <laughs> this is the only day you've got. This is the only life you will ever have. You can't go back and get, you can't get another day. you got to live it the way it is. So m my mother taught me a lot. Her death taught me a lot, and that is value your friends and family above all else because that's really all that matters besides looking good. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, two, three years has been don't rock the boat, don't do anything. Uh, last year, between January and September, the Congress did pass one bill that was signed by the president. You want, somebody here knows, because I asked them to earlier. They changed the name of the Washington National Airport to the Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport. Now, I'm not kidding you. There ain't anything going on there. And we have got serious problems to address. And one of the biggest political problems is they don't want to do anything because it'll make Clinton look good. See, because it'll happen on his watch. That's why the Republicans are in such a quandary about what they're going to do. The question she asked me was, what do I do? I, um... <laughs> you digress. I, I, I oh, sorry, I digress. I'm not supposed to be so close uh, Well, to I live in Washington about 10 days out of the month, and I am one of the people who get things done. She's a lobbyist. So, I'm a lobbyist. <laughs> so if you, you know, most people don't have a clue how to get anything done in Washington. And they need real high-rent people like me <laughs> to help them do it. And I am really good at it. <laughs> so I, I work for a law firm, although I'm not a lawyer. I, I'm, a, I'm a strategist, and I'm an advisor, and I open doors and things like that. I make speeches around the country, and I, and I enjoy that. And I also serve on some corporate boards. And that interests me, learning about how business works from, from, that, uh, from that angle. It's been, been fascinating. And then I have all these grandkids I see every once in a while. Uh, the, the answer is, I'm just doing whatever I want to do. <laughs> And it is a wonderful thing to be able to say that to you. All my life, I've done what I thought I was supposed to do. And I figure, looking at my mama, I've got about 20 years that are going to be really productive, you know, where I've got all my faculties and all of that. And I'm going to do any damn thing I want to. That's what I'm going to do. All right, we've got some um, good, good questions from the audience. Uh, here's one. As a woman, mother, grandmother, what type of example do you think Hillary Clinton is setting for young women as she stands by her man? Well, one of the attributes that I respect the most is loyalty. And it comes in different forms. You can't always describe the kind of loyalty that you want to see. But I think that what Hillary has said, uh, n not, not vocally, because she really hasn't said anything since the interview with, with Matt on today's show. Um, I think she has borne this with dignity. I think she has set an example for her daughter that life is not always gonna turn out the way you want it to. Something we never want to tell our kids is that living is hard. It is never easy. And Hillary Clinton has been through really difficult, tough, tough times. And she has done it with grace. 
She's done it with aplomb. And I think she says to women out there, regardless of their age, be your own person. Be who you are. Don't let the rabble affect you and get into your core. If you know who you are inside, then all of that stuff out there does not matter. Uh, and I'm, I am very proud of her that she's been able to do what she has. The next question is, why doesn't half the country vote? Moreover, why does no one in public office ever raise this as a problem or seek to redress it? You mean the business of why people don't vote? Um, well, people do raise it all the time. They do everything they can, but by and large, when people don't vote, they think it's not gonna make any difference. They think that government is irrelevant and that, that government doesn't affect their lives. But the problem is, it's very difficult to communicate. The only time people get exercise is when they're in a traffic jam, when the, there's a pothole in the street and they want somebody to fix it, or when there's a shooting in the neighborhood and the cops don't get there fast enough, or when there's an EMS unit that doesn't pick them up quick enough when they have a heart attack. No one associates that with who is elected to public office. They think it has to do with the bureaucrat some way that's not you know, performing in a way that they should. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. I think most, mo most elected officials do everything that they can who run on the Democratic ticket because when there's a big turnout, we win. Um, it's been my experience at home that Republicans repress the vote if they possibly can uh, because the more people turn out, the more, uh, more likely Democrats win, and, and so they would, prefer, uh, they would prefer that they not. Uh, but I don't know the answer to that. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm no wizard, but people talk about it all the time, and going all shaw isn't going to make any difference. You've got to talk about issues, though, that people care about. And then the press is going to jump all over you because, as they did with Clinton, saying, you know, what's he doing talking about school uniforms? Who does he think he is, the governor of the United States, you know? Uh, but the reality is, unless you talk about stuff that comes real close to home, people aren't going to listen to you. They don't want to hear all of that policy debate. They don't want to know what you're going to do in Rwanda. You know, they want to know what you're going to do down here with gridlock uh, in the, in the, on the corner. Don't you think all the negative campaigning also turns people off because they just say to hell with all of them? Well, that's what they say, but it seems to motivate them. Um, if it didn't work, people wouldn't do it. Well, it's not working if turnout is so low. I don't think that's true, though, Katie. I, I think that the, I, I don't think the, tur the, the turnout comes directly from the negative campaigning. I think it comes directly from the fact that they don't think it's going to make any difference one way or another. And I don't know how to fix that. Good as I am. I <laughs> <laughs> um, what Democratic ticket can beat a Bush Dole ticket? I think it's going to be hard. I, and um, I, I think that I, I love Bill Bradley personally, by the way. I think he's a <laughs> wonderful guy. Uh, but I also think that Al Gore is going to be the nominee. And uh, 
and I and I think, uh, well, <laughs> get over it. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, as far as a, a vice presidential candidate, I don't know who you know really at this point that there's even any guessing about it. I would love to see a minority nominated. I'd on the principle of it. I, I really would love to see that. And then you're going to say, well, who can do it? And the question, the answer is, I don't know. Maybe we'll find somebody good. George W. Bush, shrub, which is what Governor Richards called. I him. never did do that, but I got credited with it, and you I did. thought it was pretty funny. So you never I, called him shrub. Uh, uh I didn't. Huh. And Elizabeth Dole are getting very favorable press. What issues do you agree and disagree with them about? Well, number one, I disagree with both of them on abortion. I think a woman has a right, and every woman has a right, and no government, no government should interfere whatsoever in a woman's decision about whether or not to have children. I mean, uh, hey, hey, no, wait, don't jump all over that guy. Uh, let, uh, let me tell you, I have seen more children in a world of hurt as a consequence of their birth to people who did not want them and could not care for them than I have from people who've had abortions. And, and I want to respect anybody who has a moral disagreement with that. But you disagree in your own life, don't tell the government to legislate what my daughters or my granddaughters or other women must do. Um, I, I, pro I, I disagree very strongly uh, with the position that you should take public tax dollars and invest them in what amounts to tuition payments to private schools. Um, I, I, and I don't disagree with the existence of private schools. I think that anybody that wants to create one and they can get people to come to it, they get people to teach, whatever, that's fine with me. But don't ask me to pay for it. Don't ask me to pay for anybody else's ideological and moralistic and religious teaching because that's not the, where this country was founded. People came to this country because of religious repression and I am not going to endorse the right of anybody to impose their religion in the public schools. And that is exactly what's taking place here. So I got a very strong disagreement. Uh, with the ticket on, on, on the issue of public schools because I think eventually they're trying to destroy the public school system. Um, what else? <laughs> I, of course, if I could be, you know, queen for a day, I would, I, I would very strongly address the issue of job training for all of the people that we have taken off of welfare. I think that what we have done, 
is, is we, have, we have pretended that we have done something that we have not done. And that is we have not created the kind of jobs, nor have we created the underpinnings necessary to support these people and, and their children until, until they're actually trained and they actually have jobs. I think, that's, I think that's pretty universal across the country. Um, I suspect that we have some pretty strong disagreements about the environment. I think that the federal government has got to impose some very, very uh, serious laws relative to global warming. I think that the federal government has a responsibility to keep our air and our water pure because I don't think there is another agency that can do that. The private sector certainly is not going to do that. Um, I think that they are going to have to seriously address the question of Social Security and medical care in this country. And I, I, I know that it is wrong for some clerk hundreds of miles away from here on a telephone to be making medical decisions about me and about my family. I should have a right to a doctor of my own choosing and I should have a right that that doctor makes medical decisions about my medical care. And the federal government's going to have to address that and I'm pretty sure that a Bush Dole ticket would not agree with that. And uh, I don't know what else. Gee, but that's any, enough. Any, that, that's any enough. areas of agreement? Well, we all we all love our country. <laughs> um, here, sorry, this just in. Thank you. Um, I'll get to those in a second. Uh, a question that a lot of New Yorkers are interested in: uh, Do you think? Rudy Giuliani's quote-unquote quality of life program is a vicious attack on civil liberties or an effective way to make New York City more civilized? I don't know a thing in the world about that. <laughs> what is his quality of life? Oh. Well, oh, I he's don't seizing know. Uh, the cars of people who are arrested for DWI and he's oh, trying yeah. to make New York a nicer place yeah. in his words, but many people think that he's attacking and, and, and hurting minorities in the process. For example, yeah. street vendors, uh, yeah. uh, he's part cab drivers, cab drivers squeegee uh -huh. men, um, and people like that. And, and there's, there's an increasing feeling among some New Yorkers that he's taken it too far, that it's become a bit too draconian. I see. Is that a right, correct characterization? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying well, hard to be intelligent here. I know. <laughs> God, it's good. I mean, that one had three syllables in it. <laughs> um, well, it sounds like, you know, we ought to encourage him and then we'll beat him. <laughs> I mean, and then that. But I, 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 I really don't know. I can't comment. I can tell you this. Uh, most of you all know I'm the most public alcoholic in the world. Uh, you know, I've had 19 wonderful sober years, uh, but I, I know that I'm always just, you know, that far away from where I was. So I, I have 
I have mixed emotions about taking people's car away. But if you can keep people from driving drunk, it will be a really wonderful thing in this country. Um, the only problem is that a lot of those drunks have families, and you take the car away, and they can't get to work. So there's always, you know, a mi kind of a mi mi mixed bag with it. Uh, this is a follow-up to the previous Hillary question. What has Hillary Clinton accomplished that indicates she would be an outstanding senator? Well, uh, f first of all, Hillary is really knowledgeable about um, health care. The early days of the administration was such a debacle politically uh, because they assumed that what you do, well, let's get down to it, y'all. Uh, <laughs> you have to remember, Bill Clinton came to the White House as being the governor of Arkansas. Now, there is, and he was a great governor of Arkansas, but Arkansas <laughs> is not a big place. <laughs> the complexity of the problems facing Arkansas are not quite on the level that they are in the rest of the United States. So they, they come into office, and what do they think you do? If you're going to push a big program, as they were with health care, which is really important, still important, you, you, I imagine what you did in Arkansas is put a package together and you don't get all the ribbons wrapped around it and tied with a bow and you present it to the legislature and they're so overwhelmed by the magnificence of what you have done, they pass it. <laughs> it doesn't work that way in Washington. In fact, if anything works in Washington, it is you just get incrementally what you can get until you move ahead, until you finally get a big health care package, maybe after four to eight years. And I, they didn't know that. The answer to your question is Hillary Clinton knows a whole lot about health care and I think would be, uh, she'd be a tremendous advocate. The second thing that she knows is how to get along with people. And you remember what this, you know what the Senate is? It's a big committee. For all of you who have ever served on committees, you know what you gotta do is go and get half the committee plus you <laughs> to get anything done. And I think she has that polish I think she has that ability to negotiate a position. Now, for specific issues in New York, I don't know, but New York, you know, is, is like the rest of the United States. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that her awareness of the needs of the underprivileged, of the poor, of women, and of minorities is really remarkable. Now, are there specific issues on which you are going to disagree with Hillary Clinton or anybody else who runs for office? Well, yeah. Yeah, you're going to disagree. But if you are suggesting that she would not be a good public servant in the Senate, uh, oh, get back here. You, you know, you'd be wrong. She'd make a wonderful member of the Senate. What do you think about uh, people looking increasingly 
at governors as potential presidential candidates because perhaps they, what Bogue referred to as the poisonous atmosphere on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. Do you think that being governor of a state is perhaps even better training ground for seeking the presidency than, say, being a congressman or senator? I think it has a lot to do, you know, with the personality. And I'll tell you who we're infatuated with always, the person we know the least about. <laughs> you know, we're looking for the Messiah. Surely goodness and mercy, somebody's gonna come from on high, you know, gonna wave the magic wand and be absolutely blemish free and wonderful and know how to run the country. And um, if we don't know too much about them, we like them a whole lot better than the people that we know everything about. Is that what happened with Ross Perot, you think? Oh, there was some of it that Ross, and, but Ross at least had some ideas. Ross was a man of action. He, he, he was not some shy violet who was just running on personality alone. <laughs> you know, Ross had something to say. Instead of all of this namby-pamby goodness stuff. Uh, I mean, get real, y'all. You look at most of the ads that come on television for candidates, and you know what they, they say? If I get elected, I think we ought to teach the children to read. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! And, you know, Ross, Ross had some, some ideas. God, he's a fascinating guy. Do you think he's going to resurface? He might not. I don't think he will as a candidate, though. I, I, he might, though, because let me tell you something. Ross Perot drove a lot of issues. He forced a dialogue, which I thought, which I thought was beneficial. He made them talk about some stuff maybe they didn't want to talk about. Um, but yeah, they look to governors because governors are executives and presidents are executives. But if you've got a senator that's really attractive and who spends a lot of time out in the hustings and gets, gets his name about, you know, they've got an opportunity too. Uh, but the governors have always been big deals. You look at the nominees uh, past few years. They've come, you know, the, Jimmy Carter, um, Mario Cuomo. Ronnie Reagan. Uh, yeah, Ronnie Reagan. They've, I mean, they've all been, they've all been governors. Um, this is kind of a, a touchy-feely one. <laughs> what is your biggest regret? Oh, God, I really, you know, I don't, I don't have any regrets. Um, I, um, I guess if I could kind of redo some things, I, I would have, I, and I was going to have a political career, I would have started when I was younger. But I didn't really have that, that opportunity. I mean, women just weren't supposed to do these jobs. And uh, so, I w yeah, I, w I probably would have started earlier. But God, I've had so, such a fabulous life, such a wonderful life, it's so good now. And uh, not to sound like Pollyanna, but my God, I've, I've, my kids all have their health. I've got 
seven fabulous, well, they're mostly fabulous, <laughs> grandchildren, and I get to go to all the movies I want to see. I get to travel, do good, you know, cool stuff. Get to come sit and listen, make people listen to me talk. Are you still uh, riding around on a motorcycle? No. No. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Any reason why? Well, that I tell you, the whole deal about that was. Motorcycles and Texas hair just don't go together. Our hair, we wear our hair like this. <laughs> because my hairdresser said that you gotta have big hair to distract from a big rear end. <laughs> so it's, it's all a matter of scale. And... Um, since I started lifting weights and eating right, my hair's gotten smaller. <laughs> that motorcycle deal was that I made the remark, and a, a, a reporter heard it, that for my 60th birthday, I'd like to get my motorcycle license. That's how the whole deal started. So Harley Davidson sent me a motorcycle. And governors can't keep presents like that, I'm sorry to say. So the state has it. But I went through the deal, I learned to ride the motorcycle, I got my license, and now I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> what is your proudest accomplishment? Oh, well, you know, you always have to say your kids. <laughs> because, I mean, always, I mean, that is the biggest deal, that you produce these wonderful, wonderful people. Um, if you ask me what's the best thing I did um, when I was in public office, I think it was always making certain that the power was distributed among all the people, that minorities and women filled the positions that previously had been reserved always for only white males. Uh, because I believe in democracy, and I think we all need to be in there. So, so I, I, I did a really good job of that. I was proud that I created more jobs in Texas for three years in a row than any other state in the United States. Economically, uh, um, I think our administration really pulled us out of a deep hole and on, on the road to, to what is incredible uh, prosperity. And... Um, If, if I, I always said I didn't want my tombstone to read, she kept a really clean house. <laughs> so, um, if I were to try to craft something, I, 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 what I'm proudest of about who I am is that I've never... I've never tried to be anything other than what I am and that I've always spoken what I thought was true and what was honest and what was right for me and that I always was a strong voice for women. Now that I'm prouder of probably than any other 
other single thing. And it doesn't mean I don't love you men because y'all have gotten me in a lot of trouble in my life. <laughs> I, I like men a whole lot. But we just needed more help, you know. Women have to be told that you can do anything you want to do. All you've got to do is to know it in your core, that you're just as smart as they are. Don't let anybody put you down. Don't let anybody make you feel small. Don't let anybody make you feel as if you don't have a contribution to make. You are more than half the population of this country. You are the people who are the most caring in the sense that you care for the old, you care for the young, you work your tail off now at jobs that pay less than those for men. You are finally being recognized as having specific health problems. Did you know for years they didn't even use women in clinical trials ab about health? The, the word at the NIH was even the lab rats were white males. <laughs> Do I want you to take the place of men? Absolutely not. I want you to stand beside men as strong and brave and independent Americans. Do not let anyone repress your rights because they tell you religiously they have the right to do that. Don't let them take anything away from you. And if I can empower just a few women to do it in their own lives, it then will reverberate in young women's lives so that we don't have the inequities that we face and the disparities that we face. And if I could tell women anything today, it is go out there and make some money. That's what this country respects. You can do more for the 92nd Street. Why? By writing them a great big fat check for whatever campaign they're putting on than you can for all the volunteer hours. Now, don't take it wrong. I want you to be volunteers. I want you to feel good. But I want you to make some money, and I want you to be independent. You understand? And you're not going to be independent unless you've got money in the bank. You're always going to be dependent on somebody else to try to take care of you and guide you and help you and all of that. And when you're doing that, you are diminished as a person. I want you to be independent of anybody telling you what to do. You're the only one that can take care of yourself. Nobody's going to do it for you. And the last thing in the world that you want to happen to you is to end up in a trailer in your daughter's driveway. You understand? <laughs> have we gone on or have we gone on? I think we're, I think we're done. Governor Richards, thanks so much for being here. <laughs>